The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. I think the first thing you should write in that notebook Mark mentioned is, Pastor Bill is supremely disorganized in what he says. That would be principle number one. Principle number two, those are beautiful children. Principle number three, I know you brag about your children constantly because I know I brag about mine incessantly. Therefore, the other day I was with a professional, wonderful man, former Marine, of course, Army, Air Force, okay, guys, love all of you, no, no doubt. Flyboys, yeah, off we go into the wild blue yonder. And I'm talking to this gentleman, and I'm telling him about, say, my friend Kurt and the people I know so I can build my esteem up and that kind of thing. And, and uh, so I, and I'm, I'm doing my triple A thing, ask, admire, admit, because I want to talk to him about Jesus at the end of this little chat. I ask questions, admire something about him, and I admire him very much. He's a wonderful man. And I start telling him about the kids, and I started walking away, knowing that I'd had a good conversation. Uh, but I said, you know, I probably said something in the admit part about I was a bit of a mess, but I hadn't signed the deal. I started walking away, and I said, I can't not say this. I said, you know, the only thing that has helped me make it through life, and the only thing that has brought blessing to these dear children that I've been uh, blessed to parent is Jesus Christ. And I said, it's Christ. It's Christ. Now, he looked at me. There's no signing on the dotted line, but it is a moment, and he nods, and he knew exactly what I was talking about, and I already admitted I was a failure in and of myself, but Christ had made a difference. This morning, We're going to be looking at the disciples a little bit. Maybe I could read this early. It's at the top of my list. It's not, again, in order, but uh, Thomas Paine said this, and George Washington used it as he talked to revolutionary troops. And when you look at the revolution, oh my gosh, it was one nasty piece of work. It was absolutely horrible. I lived in Valley Forge, and until I read Chernow's biography or began it, on on Washington, I could not imagine what he went through. And I want to say this about George Washington and so many in that time. Stress, the stress of life inevitably draws us, drives us to our knees. It just makes you feel when bayonets are coming and bullets are flying, what do we have but Jesus? And as I traced his life, I told someone uh, they haven't mentioned in hundreds of pages of this massive biography, They haven't mentioned much about his religion. His wife, Martha, however they did, she daily labored in Bible study and prayer for him and for the nation. But ultimately, as the war comes on, and in in a sense, things are breaking down in ways that are inexpressible, you see more and more the mention of his utter dependence on God. Not only that, his desire that he discovered during the war when 20% of his troops were black, his desire to release his slaves and step away. Jesus Christ is the answer to every question. Listen to this, Thomas Paine. These are the times that try men's souls. Does that sound familiar? The summer soldier 
And the Sunshine Patriot will, in this crisis, speaking of the Revolutionary War, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. This was Thomas Paine on America's brave soldiers as they faced overwhelming odds prior to crossing the Delaware. We need thee, oh, we need thee, every hour we need thee. Why? Because of what Michael prayed. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But there is power in his ransom of us. There is power in his buying us with his precious blood. There is power in his life being lived through us. Charles Spurgeon said this. It's just good theology. I couldn't resist it. Salvation is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not of works. Neither can it be procured by human merit. It is the free gift of God through the atoning sacrifice of Christ to every soul that believes. But what is salvation? Salvation is in short deliverance from sin. Deliverance from the guilt of it. Deliverance from the punishment of it. And finally, from the power of it. If then any man is saved, he is delivered from the reigning power of sin. Principle one is justification. That is a position the Lord puts us in, which means it's, we become just as if we'd never sinned when Christ comes in as our ransom our sacrificial lamb, our Lord and our Savior. Sanctification is point two. You can't be a Christian without a, a, a powerful force coming in you to begin you to change you from the inside out. If you're an arrogant punk as I was, you become almost imperceptibly over time a servant because the highest stature, and this is kind of what we'll talk about some this morning, is to be servant of all. Jesus, even in the Old Testament, was, it was prophesied uh, from Isaiah that he would be kind of a suffering servant. And this is high praise, the man that gives himself in the cause as Washington did, as Lincoln gave his life, as Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life. You name the people that are truly famous and truly virtuous in some way or another, you will inevitably see Christ-likeness buried somewhere in their DNA. I think it's impossible not to see it. And it is impossible for the believer not to have change that principle of sanctification, which means holiness, which means otherness, differentness in his body. And finally, the good news of the gospel is not only justification, just as if I'd never sinned, sanctification, that's holiness, purity, the working of God's Holy Spirit to make us more and more into the image of Christ, but finally, glorification. Ah, one day I will be with him, seated with him, even now I am, in heavenly places. We have been ransomed. We will be renewed, that sanctification, and we will one day be radiant. I had a man uh, in the family, he was an uncle of mine, and I'm going to make this long story very 
a brief. He was one of the skinniest men you'll ever see in your life. He was bald. He was, uh, except for the skinny part, he looked like me to some degree. Uh, he was a, 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 a soldier, a Marine, and uh, he was on a little island called Wake Island in World War II. And he was put there because he was extremely capable. He was a major, and he was made the head of the garrison there, the head of the, a band of brothers that was there on that island. This was, uh, and my, my best recollection was things started hopping about December 8th of, uh, uh, I, I think it was 1941. World War II broke out, I think, December 7th. Don't correct me if I'm wrong. Forgive me. And this guy had been training these people forever. He was a humble man. He wasn't much of a much, but he was a martinet in terms of training and discipling people. Jesus Christ, we will see here, was not only a savior, but he was a teacher. In verse 30, we'll get back to Jimmy Devru in a, a while, and I'll just tell you in advance, Mark's name is Devru. That's his middle name, and he's named after this guy. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. This is speaking of the disciples of the Lord Jesus and himself. And what is interesting is he is no longer in outreach mode, not himself personally. We have seen him cast out demons. We've seen him heal the sick, uh, raise the dead. You name it, he's been doing it. But now, according to God's plan and purpose, he is doing something perhaps greater. He is taking the clay of men and molding them more and more into the image of God. And so they went from there, this place where they had had great success, and kind of snuck into their old haunts, the area called Galilee, right by the sea. And they did not want anyone to know. Well, what about to go into all the world and preach the gospel, Jesus? Not now. This is a teaching moment. In God's wisdom, Jesus believed the hour had come to teach and he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him, he had been surrounded by people, masses of people, but he realized that ultimately he is sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And for this moment, he's going to talk to these boys as representatives of that. Similar to, to Major Devereux on an island. He's training people. He is stopping everything to train people for possibilities. And his martinet nature, this teaching function, this almost these fearful things that would be said, were going to change them into people of strength and confidence in order to make a difference in their world. Jesus had been surrounded by people, in essence, lovingly hounded by them. He is sent, however, to the Jewish people first and then to the whole world. And in order for his disciples to have something to share with their world, he needs to set them apart for focus, teaching, and meditation. As a rabbi might, he tends at this moment when he tells them this shocking thing that people are going to try to kill him. And then he'll rise. They, they don't even know what he's talking about. They expected a nationalistic Jewish movement. A conquering king like David, backed by a holy God, would bring them. And this new miracle-working Jewish carpenter, uh, Jesus, 
They thought he would bring them into national power and prestige. They would have some self-esteem. They would be something. Shockingly, instead of that, he introduces them into a game plan featuring his own death and what sounds like a resurrection. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Well, again, now he's there to teach them, and he's not telling them what they want to hear. He's preparing them for his death and for something miraculous. And they don't get it at all. These boys on that Wake Island, they were taught something about using their weapons, about everything. He was drill master uh, personified. And what happens at the end of the day, and I'll explain why I'm bringing this up, is the Japanese forces attack them. For two weeks, this group of 400 young men are in a battle with one of the most powerful nations on the planet. They hold them off. They take down two destroyers. They... Uh, um, uh, assault cruisers, they fight like nobody's business to the extent that after they were captured and slaughtered in many cases, they spent three and a half years in Japanese prisoner of war camps. And what happened after the war is when these boys who were left walked into a room, oftentimes the commanding officer of that group of people said, stand up, this is a Wake Island Marine. Well, when Jesus leaves these boys here, they be, are beginning to be prepared for the onslaught of humanity that is going to come after them and for death and for sanctification, holiness, but ultimately for glorification. They are going to die in the most noble cause on the planet. But they have to learn a few things. What were you discussing on the way, he says? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Barclay says it very cleverly and poetically. This was probably a silence of shame. Who's going to be the greatest? Is that something you die after your, your beloved idol, if you will, the, 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 this prophet has said that he's going to die and be killed by men? They're still interested, self-interested, in self-glorification rather than something else. This is on all likeliness, the silence of shame. Some would say they had begun to meditate and perhaps, perhaps politic after they had seen Peter, James, and John on the mountain of transfiguration and they were wondering, they were calculating, who's the best, who's, who's the, the manliest man among us here? And those guys think they're going to make it? I don't think so. You've seen politically here in a, the United States the desperate need of human beings to be somebody. It's, it is distracting, it is confusing, it's in each one of us to some degree, and yet Jesus is taking them aside to do a deeper work of sanctification in their lives. I remember one time um, a man came into a room where I was uh, cursing and we were speaking in foul ways. This is what we did, uh, what I did as a young amoral man. And a young man who was a Christian who I respected came into the room, heard us, and very gently, very slowly, he turned on his heel, kind of backed out of the room and left. 
because we were unholy, because what we were thinking about and talking about had no dignity, no, no majesty, no nothing. It was just foul, ridiculous, self-centered, and absurd. So it was with these guys talking about political climbing and how to get there and who was really important. Arguments on that, back and forth about who would be in command. And I went to this man, I said, listen, I said, I knew he was a Christian. I, I figured that's why he left the room. I said, I'm sorry, you know, I'm just, we're just foul mouth. This is what we do. And he said, no problem. That's, you know, I, I, I wasn't thinking about it afterwards. He was my RA. He was my resident assistant. I respected him. And I just walked out. But there was something there in the room when he came in. There was a holiness and a godliness and something different that caused me to be convicted of sin that caused Christ to tap on my shoulder just for that moment and caused me to wonder. So he sits down after they had kept silent and then they were arguing with other. He sat down and called the 12 and he says this, if anyone must, would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Oh, that's not the job description I wanted. I just want to be crowned and enthroned, Jesus. That's, that's all I want. I just want to be the main man. I want position and prestige. I want beauty and wonder. I want the adoring crowds, not the very dangerous cross. What Jesus did was he recreated with his troops and sublimated ambition. For the ambition to rule, he substituted the ambition to serve. For the ambition to have things done for us, he substituted the ambition to do things for others. So far from being an impossibly idealistic view, this is a view of the soundest common sense. This is what great men and great people do. There was a, a man uh, who was... Uh, famous in England. His name was Stanley Baldwin. I believe he was the prime minister of, e e uh, of England. And he had a, a, a man come to him whose name was Lord Curzon, a, a famous uh, person who had run uh, for the position of prime minister. And uh, William Barclay uses this to illustrate uh, a certain humility. Um, he saw that uh, the really great men, he said, the really great men, the men who are remembered as having made a real contribution alive are the men who said to themselves, how can I use the state and society, not how can I use the state and society to further my own prestige and my own personal ambition. And we can substitute women for men here. But how can I use my own personal gifts and talents to serve the state that's called service? Mr. Baldwin, as he then was, paid a noble tribute to Lord Corzon when he died. And in it he said this to a group of, of people. I want, before I sit down, to say one or two things that no one but I can say. The prime minister sees human nature bare to the bone. And it was my, he's speaking of himself, and it was my chance to see him, Lord Corzon, twice when he suffered great disappointment. The time when I was preferred to him as prime minister... Baldwin had beaten Corzon for the position of 
prime minister and the time when I had to tell him he could render greater service to the country as chairman of the Committee of Imperial Defense than in the foreign office. Clearly, the foreign office job was the one he wanted. Each of these occasions was a profound and bitter disappointment to him, but never listen carefully. For one moment, this is Christ's likeness, did he show by word, look, or innuendo, or by any reference to the subject afterwards that he was dissatisfied. He bore no grudge, and he pursued no other course than the one I expected of him, of doing his duty where it was decided that he could best render service. Here was a man whose greatness lay not in the fact that he reached the highest office of state, but in the fact that he was ready to serve his country anywhere. Christian, are you ready to be a servant? Are you sitting with the rabbi? The rabbi sat and taught, and Jesus is teaching them the way up is the way down. The way for glory is the, the path of humility. It is not something we do in our own strength. It is something that Jesus produces in us, both humility, but out of that spring beauty and honor and goodness. He then goes on to say this, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms. It's important for us to see that he is demonstrating with a a practical example, he takes this little one in his arms. Some think it was Peter's child. Some think it was, a, no one knows. That's speculative. But he, he brings this child to him. And the God of the universe loves you. You're his children. And he loves little children. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Is this not an illustration of the love of God for all mankind? This points to our need to protect and love people around us. Just love them. Just put our arms around them. Appropriate, yes, of course. That, we, that I even have to say this kind of thing is insanity that we can't even trust ourselves in the day-to-day, -day. that the idea of taking a child in your arms today is so perverse, hence our need for Jesus Christ, a renewal of our spirit, a purity that is like my friend Robin who walks into the room, and we all sense the presence of the Lord when he comes in and also when he goes out, and yet he loved us enough to try to enter into our discussion not knowing how foul it was going to be. Is this not an illustration of the love of Christ for all mankind, at least for those who are open to him and his entreaties? John said to him, now John tends to be a problem. John, the great apostle of love, uh, says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. He's still feisty. He's still a bit full of himself, I would interpret. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. How dare, this is his thought, he have the opacity to usurp our prerogatives. We are the called, chosen, and elected by you, Lord Jesus. That's his thinking, I, I believe. That's what I wrote at any rate. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, what I want to do with this moment is this. I 
Some of us talk to people about the Lord. I don't want to make a big deal of this. I want us to be led by the Spirit. I want us to be relaxed. I want us to be calm about it. But we look for fruit. We look for someone dropping to their knees and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is not generally what goes on. What happened with this boy he's describing is he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ clearly and his power, and he was trying to imitate him. And Jesus is saying, that's a great thing. And what I want to say to you as, as his witnesses is, you can end a discussion without a conversion and trust that the Holy Spirit used that moment for you, that triple A of, an, an, a, you know, ask, admit, admire, ask, admire, admit, to do something, to press a little button in the human heart and maybe make a difference. What we need is kingly power from directly bequeathed by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God had use for the man, but not for the, not the disciples. They didn't, they didn't have use for that guy, but God did. And God himself was doing a, an intimate, invisible work in a man's life. That's going on in your families, by the way, if you're living for Christ. That's going on all around us if we just kind of could sense his presence and his nearness. It's childlike faith and Holy Spirit power we need to trust in. This disciple, some of these guys had been reading their own press. They thought too highly of themselves, walking and talking and sitting with Jesus. Should humble us. And humility is a key to service. True greatness always emanates, signs, shines through those who serve. You can't be around some people in this room. I have a list of the names. There are so many, so many of you that reflect the light of Jesus Christ. It's stunning. There are people in this room and in this place and in this area that are being used by the Lord in the day-to-day -day service they provide, like Jackie back there in the corner, just as one. There's many of them, many of them. He that would be great among you must be servant of all. And when people see people literally laying down their lives, a question mark will emblazon itself on the brain to say, why are they doing that? And that's when all of life changes. I remember when Mark left um, uh, Price Waterhouse. I say that to, uh, because it's the foremost accounting firm, some would say, in the world. And uh, the Lord Jesus had put him there. And the lady whose boss, he, he, he was the boss he served under, wept when he left. Why? Why? Because he'd just been witnessing to her endlessly? I suspect so. I'm going to brag about all of you in this. I know all of you. I know you. You're like that, and I thank God for that. People are watching. And she wept because she was losing him. Right? She wept because Christ did something in him because of service. In this church, everybody knows Jackie, Diane, I say it a hundred times, Mark. They're just robotic in their service, in their hands-onness, in their difference. And hence, the Lord recognizes Susan Wyant or any number of people. They're all over Gary helping the men out, that kind of thing. The principle is, seems to be, it is the power of Jesus Christ who can revolutionize the individual asking for it. God, the Holy Spirit, doesn't need our, uh, our gifts to reach people. He just needs humble, tender people. And he will ransom 
folks from futility. He will continue to pay a price through your very lives, through your service, to change our world. You ask what we can do in this crazy hour of black darkness in the hearts of our countrymen and in our world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Lord, Curzon is noted years and years later because he stood up like a man, took the rejection politically, and did not whine and complain about it. I suspect he was trusting in a higher power than himself who had his destiny right in the palm of his hand. Do you know God has a plan and a purpose for your life? Do you know you'll find it by humbling yourself and becoming childlike? Do you know that right now he places his safe and protective arms around you and loves you and commissions you to go into all the world and preach the good news that God was in Jesus Christ ransoming people buying them out of their bondage and slavery and placing them in a whole new world, in a world controlled and dominated by the Spirit of the living God and the life of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we have been healed. Oh, Lord, you paid a debt you did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away, and now I sing amazing grace because you paid the debt. You ransomed me, and I could never pay it. Thank you for doing that. Lord, our prayer is so fill us with your Holy Spirit that if nothing else, we're unmistakably yours, that we're servants that we're lowly in heart and that they see our people, our friends, those who are lost, Jesus Christ reflected by us. We ask this now in Jesus' name. And if there's one person here this morning who hasn't yet, A, admitted that they're a sinner like I am and was, B, believe Christ is the only Savior, C, and has chosen, see, to follow him. If that is your position, won't you right now ask Jesus to come in? I won't ask for raised hands or walking aisles. I'm looking for a heart inclined to the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's here right now. Won't you ask him to come in and fill you with himself? And then recognize his power as it begins to work in and through you. If that's your prayer, if that's your desire, he hears that and he sees that and he will meet you this very hour. Amen.